I'm Sarah Elizabeth Smith, and this is the Theosophia Podcast, a platform for women's voices in theology. If you love Theosophia and appreciate us, consider donating to our Patreon campaign by visiting patreon.com slash theosophia. The next two weeks, I'll be featuring Army Chaplain Jennifer Lane on the podcast. Jennifer has a bachelor's degree from the University of North Carolina, a master's in public administration, and juris doctorate from Indiana University, and most recently a master's in divinity from Vanderbilt Divinity School. She wrote her final thesis on soul repair of moral wounds from war. In 2014, she was ordained as an American Baptist pastor and went active duty as an Army chaplain with the 209th Aviation Support Battalion on Wheeler Army Airfield, November 1st, 2016, in Honolulu, Hawaii. She also founded the Veterans Chapel in 2014 to teach churches and clergy how they can better minister to military families and veterans, particularly marginalized groups of veterans. Jen is practically the definition of a badass woman. If you looked up badass in the dictionary, there would probably be a picture of her in it. This week, we chat about Jen's journey to the Army Chaplaincy. We discuss her religious upbringing in the Episcopal and Baptist churches, her various career lives, and why it is so important to have women in ministry. Hope y'all enjoy. Here's Jen. So why don't you tell people where you're calling me from today? Because it's wild where your life is taking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm calling from Wheeler Army Airfield near Wahiwa, Hawaii. So my house is actually on the edge of a helicopter airfield. That's crazy. So it's a little bit weird. Yeah. <laughs> crazy slash awesome. So you're on Oahu? Yeah. Awesome. Yes. So Oahu is the gathering place. It's um, one of the smaller islands, but it's actually where the majority of the population, so like over a million people, actually live on Oahu. Like if wow. you fly into Honolulu or you come here for vacation, this is typically the island that most folks go to. So yeah, that's where I've been. Yeah, I'm on Oahu. Okay. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, we're, so we're you're there with your family. You were stationed there because yeah. you're active duty army chaplain. Yeah which is fantastic. And we'll talk more about (laughs) that in depth in the second part, but to go like, let's back up. Where are you from originally? And what, what was your upbringing about spiritually? And what was that like? Sure. Sure. So I grew up in the cornfields of Southern Illinois. Um, My parents divorced when I was young, but they both had, quite an impact on my spiritual formation. My dad is a retired American Baptist pastor. So retired pastors, AKA never retire. You know, so <laughs> He's still a pastor. <laughs> Cause that's how it is. <laughs> um, so I grew up since they divorced so young, they both um, ended up with, you know, newly married and new folks that they've been with for over 25 years. So mm-hmm. um, both mom went on to have, you know, other wonderful relationships. So my mom raised me Episcopalian, so I was baptized, confirmed, 
um, an acolyte, acted in the choir, and I did all that with her. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you knew that about me, actually. I, I was going <laughs> to say, I don't remember you telling me that. No, I'm not sure I ever have, actually. So <laughs> so on my mom's side, I grew up very active in the Episcopalian Church, and then I actually still have a membership with wow. the, I guess it would be like the Archdiocese in Indianapolis, like the big cathedral there. Okay. So my my membership is there, somewhat inactive, but there. <laughs> <laughs> and then <laughs> and then my dad being a Baptist pastor, of course, you know, he wanted to have his say and involvement too. And so mm-hmm. I got baptized and was very involved in his churches growing up too. So I literally kind of split into double mm-hmm. duty and was really active in both. <laughs> wow. That's, so, yes, that's... I would say I was overly religious maybe when I was younger. <laughs> you got all your bases covered, that's for sure. Right, right. So, yeah, by the time I got to college, I think I was possibly a little burnt out on Mm -hmm. the formalities of religion because there were some Sundays at my dad's where literally I would go to church like maybe seven times for a variety of services and things. Um, So, yeah, that was, it was formative and wonderful. And I never really had the kind of the space that a lot of folks have to think of a time when I didn't have faith or I don't remember God as an active participant in my life. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, an amazing blessing. Um, however, mm-hmm. by the time I got to college, I think I wanted to, you know, stay outside the box and explore my faith. And, mm-hmm. you know, so you you know what I didn't know, maybe. Yeah. Where, where you undergrad? So I went to um, a little tiny community college called Lincoln Trail for two years in my mom's hometown. And then, I got a wonderful scholarship to UNC Chapel Hill of all places and got exposed to the rest of the world. So I know you played uh, softball. So I was actually going to school with Mia Hamm and all of the Olympic uh, soccer players. Yeah, they were on, they were in my classes. So I actually did projects with them. I swear. I swear. (laughs) That's really cool. Yeah. So I knew Mia and then there was one, I can't remember her last name was Tiffany. She was in my class. We were on a small group project together. Yes. And she was on that same yes. Olympic team with Mia. Yeah. Yes. Super I cool women. Her last name. I know who you're talking about though. Mm-hmm. She played for a super long time. Um, yeah. That's really neat. Did you go watch their games? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I used to watch Mia almost every single day because you may or may not know about her. So she would practice, and I'm not exaggerating, probably 12 hours a day sometimes in the field next to my house. I mean, you know, sometimes it might, might only be a few hours. But a lot of times yeah. it was like she was out there from sunrise to sunset, it seemed like, practicing. Wow. And that was right next to my house. I could see her. I think she wow. was married to an Air Force guy at the time, but uh-huh. um, she was driven to a degree that I didn't know existed, you yeah. know? Wow, that is so cool. Yeah, it was really powerful to watch. So. Yeah, I can imagine. So were you, to get back to you and your story, although Mia's really cool, sure. I, you're, <laughs> you're just as cool in my book. Um, so <laughs> did you, were you practicing your faith or religion at all in, in undergrad, or where did you end up in terms yeah, of so, denominational ties? So I actually, well, I kept exploring. So I did attend um, an Episcopalian church sometimes. There weren't a lot of like American Baptists, so that really wasn't an option where I was. Mm-hmm. You know, the Southern Baptists are a lot stronger in the South, obviously. And this is back in the gosh, 90s to date mm-hmm. myself. <laughs> so I 
just kind of explored. So there was Unitarian Universalist Church up the hill, and so I started going there, and they had really awesome, cool stuff going on. They would have, like, um, a Holocaust Survivors Sunday, and they would have a survivor come in and speak, and they would do, you know, a lot of world religion programs, and that got me interested in Zen Buddhism. I tried to mm-hmm. integrate Zen Buddhism with my Christianity for a while. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was a cool period. Um, I went to a Sikh temple, so I, I had a few Sikh friends from Chapel Hill. That was super cool. So, yeah, Very so I just cool. explored. I had doubts, yeah. I had questions, like a lot of 20-somethings, I'm sure. Sure. And, um, yeah, I just wanted to see what else was out there and see what I might be missing. And so, you know, a lot of times it's kind of like love. You know, if you let love go and it comes back, it's stronger than ever, right? So then when <laughs> I kind of had more of those questions answered and had time to kind of explore my faith, by the mm-hmm. time I came back to the formal denominations, that's when I was like, oh, okay, now I know why I believe what I believe and mm-hmm. a little more of who I am and why. And so, yeah, so it was, it was good. That was a good time period. And I eventually came back and stayed kind of, I guess, like bivocational, I don't know, bi- <laughs> bi-spiritual mm-hmm. with both of those denominations. So I always stayed involved with both. So throughout mm-hmm. um, college, you know, I would go like, so after, a little bit during and then after, I started going back to the school churches and American Baptists and kind of continued that up until the Army really makes you pick. I mean, you're going to get endorsed. It's very formal. Yeah. So that was really, really hard for me. So it kind of helps that when I went to, yeah. you know, when I had to pick a seminary. So at the time I That's right. just decided where to go to, to seminary, I had narrowed it down to Vanderbilt Divinity School or actually an Episcopalian seminary in Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. And I went and visited there, and it was going to be really interesting because they said, you know, if you come here, but you're coming on your own, you know, not through a bishop, you'll be the only person in, in that situation. But they were more than willing to have me, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's kind of, kind of unusual. Um, right. But in the end, God kind of picked because my stepmom um, found out she had breast cancer, and I wanted to stay close to her mm-hmm. so I could help. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up uh, picking Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. you know, mainly because of her. And then also because Vanderbilt really had a wide breadth of religion yeah. represented, you know, really understood kind of the ecumenical and dynamic mm-hmm. and pluralism, which I would be exposed to in the military. So mm-hmm. um, I think God kind of, you know, helped me make that decision. And sure. I chose Vanderbilt and then kind of just decided since I wasn't under the care of a bishop and hadn't gone through the formal Episcopalian process you know with discernment and everything that um i was still a member of both churches i just you know prayed about it and Mm -hmm. and felt like you know the american baptist path was just as possible and Mm -hmm. happy for me you know i was i was really comfortable in both church homes so Mm -hmm. um, that was where i went at the time you know i always kind of wondered i was like i hope that's what god wanted (laughs) pray and try to figure it out do your best but well, any denomination yeah. is lucky to have you. Well, thank you very much. There. I appreciate that. <laughs> and and our dean, you know, Dean Towns is American Baptist, so he is. I mean, that's awesome I, that you're in her camp. Yeah, that's super awesome. Yeah, and you know, I was so proud of my denomination on a lot of the big ticket items. So when mm-hmm. it came to gay marriage, when it came to the racial divides and some of the other issues that have separated the churches. You know, I've been really impressed with what I've seen 
and my denomination, my endorsers send me formal letters, like on gay marriage, for instance. You know, we believe in the priesthood of all believers and, mm-hmm. you know, Baptist, that's kind of one of the big things they yeah. believe. And they said, hey, you guys are adults. You're religious clergy. You're professionals. Like, you can pray about this and you can decide with God where you stand on these important topics mm-hmm. and we'll support you. Mm-hmm. And so that was really powerful and awesome that they treated me with such maturity, I thought. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of let the cards fall, if you will, and trusted us to make those decisions. So that's been really cool. Yeah. And then, you know, a lot of our conferences I've gone to, I mean, it's 50-50. Like, we have real cultural diversity, and then we have a lot of uh, churches from kind of minority groups, you know, whether it be smaller countries that are, you know, well represented within my denomination, too. So I, I've been really proud of them and, and the work mm-hmm. they've done on a lot of those topics that could divide churches. Sure. Yeah, so it's been great being a part of them. Yeah, I... Actually... I think the American... um, I was just thinking while I was thinking about the racial issues, the church that actually ordained me, which is in Bloomington, Indiana, it's uh, First United, Mm. they were forefront on racial issues with Walter Rauschenbusch and, you know, back into, I think mm. I would say like the, at least the 1920s, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're advocates for racial justice and fighting that fight mm-hmm. back then even. Yeah. Which I was really proud to be a part of a church, specific church home like that too. And have they been ordaining women for a long time? Yeah, we have, you know, so, <laughs> so this issue has been contentious and interesting and powerful in my life, especially once I got to the military. But when I was growing up, I just took it for granted the women were ordained. I, I just didn't even realize that was an issue that maybe they wouldn't be because I wasn't around denominations that didn't do it. So right, right. I ran Episcopalian, which right. obviously we have lots of female priests, and American Baptists, which have been ordaining women as far as I know since the 1800s. So I just was not aware that people did it. Mm-hmm. until really until I got to the military I think when I was in the south at Vanderbilt mm-hmm. you know I kind of knew what was going on but I wasn't like personally interacting even with sure with those groups and so I didn't realize what a hot button issue it still was right, right. I mean I guess I should have because we just started letting female chaplains into the army in 1976 mm-hmm. I believe mm-hmm. so I was gonna yeah, say that, the the Episcopal Church actually was a little late on it too I don't think they oh. started ordaining women until like the sixties. It's relatively new. Okay. Um, hmm. Like the Methodists have been doing it a lot longer and the Presbyterians and the Baptists. Right. Surprisingly. Um, right. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And I think the Baptists too, like they also kind of went on a more um, unique basis based on each individual church. Home, yeah. Right. So yeah, there yeah, yeah. churches that were doing it in the 1800s and there sure. could be churches that weren't doing it till the right. 60s. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's really. And how how are you guys now, the Episcopal Church, when it comes to that topic? Is that just not a hot button topic anymore, or does it still come up sometimes? Women. Yes. Uh, at least in the U- U.S., it's not it's not a hot button issue anymore. It might be harder in certain dioceses to get ordained, but I don't like. Mm-hmm. There's no bishop who that I know of who wouldn't ordain a woman. Like. There are bishops who won't ordain LGBT folk, but 
you, right. like I'm, I'm almost certain that there's no bishop who would not ordain a wo- woman. Okay. So we're, you know, we're, we're moving ahead, but we still have some, some hangups. Um, sure. But sure. we have a different setup than the Baptists. We, you know, our bishops are in control of those things. So it's not right. a priesthood of all believers like the, the Baptists do. Right. Which is, you know, has its ups and downs. Um, right. Yeah. But um, it can be nice when you're trying to find a job, I would suppose, to have that kind of support. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, um, I, was, I was really blessed. Like, even before I came active duty, I had offers, full time offers at decently sized churches in several mm-hmm. different areas in the country. Mm-hmm. I just didn't experience what some of my female colleagues right. had kind of warned me about until I came active duty, ironically. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that yeah. has been a, a more unique experience. Yeah. Yeah. I can't I wait to get, in, get into that in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> before we get into that, I want to ask you some more like personal spiritual questions sure. um, to have folks get to know you um, a little better. What, um, what made you interested? Cause you, Weren't you a lawyer before you were a theologian and a priest? Yes. So yes, what, true. your first life, you were a lawyer. Talk me through that. Like what made you want to do that? And then what made you want to like shift into uh, ministry? Sure. And so that might have even been like my third or fourth life. I'm not sure because <laughs> I'm like 41 now. So. Um, yeah, so I actually never wanted to be a lawyer. I went to law school because I was working in policy. I'm a policy person. And right. I love working in policy. But when I worked for the House Democrats, I was writing laws that were becoming law. So like I helped write the anti-terrorism legislation in Indiana that some of which wow. is still enforced today. And wow. ironically, I remember working on gambling legislation with Donald Trump back in the 2000s, you know, <laughs> this is before he was, oh yeah, he would come to our, you know, to the state house. I think he was trying to get uh, boats at the time, gambling boats, because uh-huh. our laws were pretty constrictive in Indiana. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we were really careful not to let him wine and dine us. That wasn't allowed. You know, <laughs> we had to have these very formal meetings and, you know, he's pretty fancy kind of guy. He has high taste. So of course, of course. <laughs> we, we had to avoid all that. But yeah, that was kind of interesting. Wow. Um, but yeah, so I was working on policy and, you know, we had the majority in the house at the time the Democrats did and we, our laws were becoming law. So mm-hmm. I said, gosh, I am not, educated enough to be doing I was doing it but I, I wanted to have the degrees to go with it so I mm-hmm. went to get the I got a master's of public administration and a JD in a four-year program at Indiana wow. University it was a wonderful program and then mm-hmm. the the MPA part of it master's in public administration was through FIA, which is a school of public and environmental affairs in uh, based in Indianapolis there that was an amazing education I didn't even realize what I was getting into, they ended up being, I think it's the number one school for philanthropy in the entire world hmm. at school there. So I studied nonprofits and how mm-hmm. nonprofits work. So uh, my brief stint practicing law. So I did a lot while I was in law school. I was clerking for judges. Um, I had for a while I had clerked for a judge who had the first gay marriage case in Indiana, actually. So that was super interesting helping mm-hmm. write 
uh, the brief on that. And then I um, did some corporate, worked for some folks there, and then really found my love for nonprofits, which kind of makes sense, you know, looking now later with ending up in ministry. So um, my brief stint practicing, it was actually a, a fellowship with Indiana Supreme Court where I got to represent all nonprofits that helped the homeless in some form or fashion. So from like the United Way down to mm-hmm. little mom and pop church groups mm-hmm. um, and everyone in between. That was wonderful ministry in a way, really. I didn't know it at the time, oh, you know, but yeah, so I got to do great stuff. And then I learned things that, you know, the nice thing about a law degree is you take that forward and you can use that in any area of life. I mean, mm-hmm. you will never regret having that law degree, you know, right. so so even though I don't think God ever necessarily wanted me to be an attorney, it's still nice having the JD for sure. So oh my gosh, yes. I've uh, really appreciated it. Mm-hmm. Even now with my soldiers, I can easily figure out quickly whether or not they need to be talking to me or the JAG. You know? so <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that's a good, good thing to know. So yeah, I, um, I actually had a health scare is how I got out of law and um, kind of had, I was falsely diagnosed with something, kind of quit everything, right? So I left my fancy apartment and quit my job and moved off to the hallowed shores of California to San Diego because I was like, well, I want to see some beauty. And so I got a job uh, as a beach bartender at the Hotel Del Coronado, a fancy hotel, and watched Navy SEALs running by on the beach every day and just stared at the surf and thought, wow, this is a, this is a good way to, to live. <laughs> just appreciated the natural beauty. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, in a few years, things were pretty well still. And so I went up to UCLA and saw some specialists and they said, oh no, you've been falsely diagnosed. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And so I had left everything behind. Oh my God. I'd given away most all my stuff. I mean, really. <laughs> wow. So you, it was like a terminal thing then. Well, it wasn't terminal, but it was very, very serious without yeah. getting into too much graphic detail. Sure. Yeah, so. sure. But things did not end up the way that I was told and um, wow. saw lots more specialists and sent off my DNA and stuff just to be sure. But basically ended up spending five years in California. And, uh, you know, it was a really kind of cool time period that nothing I would have ever done on my own had that not happened. Mm-hmm. So uh, much to the pride of the constant consternation of my teetotaler Baptist minister father, you know, I was working in a beach bar and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> go I from a lawyer to a bartender. So. Yes. It's a big yes. jump. And in hindsight, it was like the most amazing training for chaplaincy ever. Well, I was right? gonna say, like I know when I, I've been a bartender too, uh, during grad school, oh, okay. those are some of the most, uh, pastoral care moments I've had, you know, mm, definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, and I don't know if you know this, but there was actually a Vanderbilt Divinity student who did their field ed as a bartender at the Mellow Mushroom Pizza place right there across no. from it. Are you serious? I swear. Yes, they talked. Uh, I think it was, I don't think it was Vicky. I think it was, who else? Yeah, I think it was not Vicky Batson, but one of the other instructors. They had talked uh-huh. to her and they allowed it and they wow. said it actually went really well. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. So there all my go. clients 
in hindsight, you know, they were military, you know, so I was at the Hotel sure. Del Coronado. I got a second job as uh, another bartender down the street because you could, you know, you could work minimal amount of time and make quite a bit in tips and really mm-hmm. have a nice quality of life. Mm-hmm. And then I took my extra time. I volunteered at the Navy and Marine Corps Relief Society on post. Mm. And then I tried to get law jobs, but at the time the economy had just tanked. Mm-hmm. And the most they were offering me was like $15 an hour mm. at nice law firms, which, you know, you can't pay your bills in California at no. $15 an hour. No. So. <laughs> no. Yeah. So they offered like at the hotel Dell, I got $10 an hour plus tips and full healthcare benefits. I had dental wow. eye and um, dental eye and uh, full health because it was a union job. Mm-hmm. So, so that was great. I mean, that was a, a great time period. Um, kind of really stretched myself outside of my comfort zone mm-hmm. and you know like where would Jesus have been right like you think Jesus was yes. up hanging out in the temple no Jesus is bartending Jesus is up yes. in the street yes talking to the people with the people yes so mm-hmm. Jesus definitely would support pub theology I would hey say. <laughs> I totally agree I totally agree <laughs> so it was was it those moments you know, serving the military folk that made you think about being a chaplain in the military? Nope. (laughs) Not at all. What made you say, I need to go back and get my MDiv? (laughs) So I actually, um, after a fairly rough breakup, I got offered a job in Beaufort, South Carolina as vice president of a real estate company and moved halfway across, literally across the country. Yeah. Yeah, So I, I went there. Wow. And I kept working um, in contracts law. So that's kind of an easy way that some lawyers will make money because you can make good money. It's kind of boring, uh-huh. but you can make money in contracts law, even if you're not barred anywhere practicing oh, okay. uh, fully. That's what I would do on the side. So I did that on the side and mm-hmm. I ended up working with an anti-terrorism task force group, just doing some kind of contract stuff. And these guys were just great. And so they, um, they were all older, mostly retired, like EOD detectives. Uh, Navy SEALs and when I had my call like I actually had like an old-fashioned call where God talked to me and told me that God wanted me to be a military chaplain and I was like yeah right I'm not gonna do that and told these guys at dinner one night we were having steaks and a beer probably and I said hey you know God's telling me to be a military chaplain and that's just crazy right every single one of these guys these were not religious guys I mean these were more so, I thought, you know, kind of drinking, smoking, tough-talking kind of guys. But apparently, they all had sides I didn't know about. And full-on were like, you're going to follow that call. I'm like, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, listen, when you get to be our age and have seen the things we've seen, and keep in mind, some of these guys were detectives like in L.A. and some mm-hmm. really rough towns and had seen probably some of the worst that humanity has to offer, right. you know. Mm-hmm. They said, God rarely speaks to you. And if you hear the voice of God, you need to do what God says. <laughs> yeah. And it was, it was that clear. I mean, honestly. And so from that day forward, wow. they were like, if we have to fire you, if we have to drag you to seminaries, whatever we have to do. And so they started helping me. They took me to meet with hmm. military chaplains on post. They took me to, I think, wherever the closest seminary. So that would have been a conservative one in Virginia. I think it was, um, what's that one up in, it's around Virginia Beach. There's one up there that they took me to. It starts with the R. But it was cool, you know, just to mm-hmm. see what the possibilities were and probably places I didn't want to apply to. <laughs> right. 
And so, yeah. And so literally from the moment I had the call to the time that I was enrolled in Vanderbilt was maybe six months. Holy maybe. cow. I mean, it was fast. And but, then also uh, getting sworn into the military. So, you know, I started the endorsement process pretty fast. I, I went through my father's home church um, in Illinois, which was wonderful because they actually really helped support me and mm-hmm. supported my call. It's First Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Illinois. Actually, mm-hmm. one of their pastors originally from the 1800s was the man who invented the dog tag. So that hmm. was kind of cool. <laughs> Random fact. <laughs> <laughs> So wow. yeah, so everything just moved really quick and, you know, I was sworn into the military direct commission as a butter bar, second lieutenant mm-hmm. and got a really good scholarship to Vanderbilt Divinity School, you know, came down there, got, you know, found a place to live and the sky's the limit and the rest is history, you know, just happened fast. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, each call can look so different. Mine was oh, definitely yeah. more of like a booming voice from the heavens kind of moment and I realized Mm. some people's calls can be very quiet and Mm -hmm. slow Mm -hmm. and mine just wasn't Mm -hmm. wow yeah it was powerful that is I I don't know yeah yeah um what's and I'm sure we're gonna get really into this in the next part but what's important to you about being a woman doing this this work in terms of being a chaplain, being in ministry, being a theologian. Wow. So, you know, I think the first time I thought about that was when, when I was a bartender for some of these Navy SEALs and there was a, an older guy who had a really high up position. Um, I'm not going to mention specifics because it's not safe, but no worries. No worries. Somebody, somebody you might hear about the news. We'll just say, um, (laughs) but he'd been doing it for almost 30 years. Mm -hmm. And you know, this is before I had my call and he, he told me this is right after we had found out that a good friend of ours, the Navy SEAL had um, gotten killed in combat and he was going to go have to do the notification and tell the spouse. And Mm -hmm. um, it was, a really intense moment and I you know I thought he handled it with grace and he said he said it was the hardest moment of his entire military mm-hmm. career and he was talking about how he would love to have some female chaplains and how he had requested female chaplains he'd been told no that you know Navy SEALs couldn't be females and so they couldn't have female chaplains and he was explaining to me the reasons why you know and, and he you know, he'd been very close to his mother and uh, he had a daughter and he was explaining to me some of the qualities that women possess that he felt like would make them well suited for mm-hmm. dealing with some of his kind of rough and tough Navy SEALs. Right. So mm-hmm. he's like, you know, my guys don't want to go in and talk to a guy about their feelings and, you know, God forbid they've been through something serious like sexual assault or, you know, or having marital problems. They don't want to talk to some guy about those things. They want right. to talk to a female. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to talk to someone who maybe reminds them of one of their childhood friends or their mom or whoever, but talking to a guy isn't, isn't something they're interested in. And, and so he kept trying through the years to get female chaplains, he had told me, which I thought was interesting. Um, yeah. And, you know, I'd always been one of the guys before that, I used to run marathons. I trained for fitness competitions and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was just at a point when he was telling me that where I was starting to appreciate what my unique gifts and skills being a woman really were Mm -hmm. and how I didn't need to be one of the guys that I, you know, that I had unique 
characteristics and things that I could do differently mm-hmm. in a way that could be helpful to myself, to others, to humanity, right? Mm-hmm. And hearing someone of his senior level mentioning the same thing I thought was really fascinating. So that stayed with me um, after yeah. having a call and then throughout my career, you know, and I've had, I've had folks come to me that would probably shock some of my colleagues. I've had male colleagues come to me through the years that had experienced great tragedies in their personal lives, maybe lost a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they, they appreciated the fact that I was also someone that had carried a child. I could imagine what that mm-hmm. might feel like. Um, mm-hmm. And just, you know, the unique perspective that I had to offer. I'll tell you the most powerful moment when I knew how important it was to make sure that the female chaplain's voices were heard was after the, well, first and only time really I've preached here in an army chapel in Hawaii. I had one of the young um, African-American female women in the congregation come out to me and say, ma'am, it was so nice to hear a female voice. She said, we hear the guys' voices all the time and and that's fine. She said, it was so nice to hear from someone more like me, you know? Yep. Just to hear that female spirit. Right moving right you know someone came up and said that exact same thing to me when i um really yeah i was um our i was substitute teaching at the episcopal school here in oklahoma city uh before i got hired mm-hmm. on full-time at my high school and i our main priest um i don't know if i told you this but he was reserve uh air force chaplain and so he would yeah. leave you know once a month to go do his duties and um he was gone mm-hmm. and they were like hey sarah would you mind like running chaplain the next three days or running chapel. And I was like, sure. Yeah, no problem. And, you know, we usually just do prayers and, um, he had some speakers lined up so I didn't have to preach, but, um, I I had preached before there, but in this case I was running chaplain. So I was doing the prayers and kind of, you know, doing different things. Mm -hmm. And anyways, um, I was reading scripture and again, saying the prayers. Then afterwards, a couple of teachers came up to me and were like, Sarah, We've, there's never been a woman to lead chapel ever at the wow. school. And it was like, just your voice was so calming and just hearing a different voice, a woman's right. voice was just so un, like they, they were emotional about it. And I was like, wow. Wow. But you know, I, I react the same way. I, I love that I have a, you know, one of my priests is a, is a woman and I, you know, it was very intentional. I chose my church because I I need to hear a woman's voice, you know, mm. Mm. Um, in the pulpit. And I need a woman to, you know, break the bread and share the wine. I need that. Um, so I get mm. that. But I, it's cool when mm-hmm. when you embody that and people appreciate your embodiment doing those sacramental right. things, you know, that really. Oh, definitely. Um, definitely. Yeah, yeah I, I guess. I knew in theory, you know, I mean, Vanderbilt Divinity School was amazing education and we had our amazing master's writing thesis groups that we did together. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we would talk metaphorically and theoretically about these things, like how right. important it is to have these different voices heard, you know, how important it is to mention female theologians in your sermons and women sure. of color sure. and people's voices that are represented. But when you're actually doing it and it works, mm-hmm. oh my goodness. I mean, there was a woman I was counseling um, when I was in the reserves, and and she had uh, 
suicidal ideations is how we describe it in the military. I don't know how civilians talk about it exactly, but, mm-hmm. and I used some of, so she was from a different culture originally. And some of the things she was going through, that was part of her difficulty was the way her culture dealt with women and women in religion in particular mm-hmm. wasn't extremely helpful for her. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she didn't, she wasn't able to fall back on it in the way that she needed. And so I had taken, you know, feminist theology and I had these other voices that I could offer her from her own culture, which I Mm -hmm. did. And so I started quoting theologians from her culture Mm -hmm. in ways that were helpful for her. Mm -hmm. And she's doing great now. I follow her on Facebook. Uh, We Mm. worked through, that was a really rough weekend. She, you know, but we worked through some things together and, I think those women's voices really helped her. So it didn't matter that I was white, you know, to Mm -hmm. know who those women were and be able to quote them and kind of gift them to her Mm -hmm. was what she needed. And it was, it was just powerful being able to actually use this in practice and it works the way we hope. (laughs) Right. Right. That's a great story. Thanks for joining us this week, y'all. Next week, we'll have Chaplain Jennifer Lane again, and we get into the nitty-gritty of what it means to be an Army chaplain and the challenges being a woman adds to her experience in a male-dominated field. You can follow Jen on Twitter at Lane and at LoveUsVeterans. And as always, please rate and review Theosophia on iTunes and visit us at theosophiapodcast.com and theologycorner.net and all the social media outlets. Have a great week, everyone. Peace.